Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Muslims in Your Backyard podcast. I'm your host, Karim Shamim. Thank you guys for joining me for another episode of this podcast. As always, I appreciate the support and for you taking some time out of your day to listen to the podcast. For today's episode, we'll be focusing on something that doesn't really relate to Muslims or Islam, but is more about the social injustice within Canada. Today's episode, I'll be focusing on the residential schools and their impact and influence in hurting and destroying generations of indigenous and aboriginal communities within Canada. And I know some of you are thinking that this doesn't have much to do with Islam, and that's kind of right. I I don't think this topic really relates directly to Muslims, but in a more broader sense, specifically to Muslims in Canada, we, as citizens of not only Canada, but also Muslims as ourselves, we need to be informed of the history of Canada. And that's what I intend to do with this episode. I want to at least educate and bring attention to what these residential schools were and what they did to these generations of indigenous and aboriginal communities and why this is important to us as Muslims. And I may get into this throughout the episode, but I think in a broader sense, at least so that we can make this clear from the very beginning, the reason I want to educate people on this or at least bring attention to it is because as Muslims, we must be people who bring justice to the world. We are supposed to be people who do good things and who bring justice and peace to others as well. And that includes being aware of the injustices that people have faced previously and they still continue to face. And these injustices faced by the indigenous and aboriginal communities go beyond just the residential schools, but this is one major injustice that has happened to these communities that needs to be talked about because by many accounts, um, and not everyone necessarily agrees with this, but a majority of people do in fact, and many scholars and academics do, say that Canada's role in the residential schools and the church the government, the British government, uh, although by far, uh, not the British government directly, but the British colonial government, uh, if you want to call it that, and as well as many actors within Canada committed a cultural genocide against the indigenous and aboriginal communities. And I know many people view a genocide where you kill people, but a cultural genocide is different, where rather than trying to kill them, what you try to do is wipe out the people's cultures and their own uh, sort of separate identities. And that's really what these residential schools were about. And I want to get into this and talk about it because, again, it's very important that as citizens within Canada, uh, and for those of you who are outside of Canada as well, it's informative at least to go through this and to start a discussion or at least get more information out there about what happened at these residential schools. And also, as I do go through this, I'm sure some of you will realize why it's so important for the people who did these injustices to be held accountable. Before we get into talking about what the residential schools were themselves, I want to first highlight that the entire episode will not be a full breakdown, as the residential schools and the problem behind the residential schools is a much more complicated uh, issue. And so I I can't go through every single detail, but I intend to uh, at least, again, introduce and inform people about what these residential schools were. Um, And also, and and I think I can't emphasize this enough, is that 
I am not an expert on indigenous or aboriginal issues. So I hope to be as accurate as I can, but I will admit that there might be a bit of inaccuracies here or there, maybe not as, uh, as uh, I guess, maybe correct information, but I've done my best to at least research and go into these topics. Um, but again, they're a lot more complicated than I'm going to present them uh, in that there's a lot more depth about the issues that were committed against the Aboriginal and Indigenous communities, uh, including things that still continue today. But again, I'll just be focusing on these residential schools. Uh, and secondly, before we get into learning about what residential schools and what their goals were, I think it's first to at least take a step back and to understand what I mean when I say the different indigenous communities within Canada. As I'm sure any Canadian knows, and uh, some of you also might know who are outside of Canada, but Canada, of course, was colonized by the British and the French. And so the white colonizers came and uh, took over the land that once belonged to a variety of different indigenous communities. And there's a variety of different definitions and sort of identities that some of these communities go by, but three broad and general ones are the First Nations communities, the Métis, and the Inuit. And I'm just going to go through these three very briefly. And so the first one, the First Nations community, uh, basically is self-explanatory in its definition. It's the First Nations. It refers to the original inhabitants of Canada. And it's important, again, that these groups actually break into different tribes, clans, and confederacies, which makes it more complicated, but to make it maybe easier so that you don't have to go into as specific details, First Nations is just referred to as the general inhabitants uh, of these areas. Next is the Métis, and the Métis are an indigenous group that is a mix of the First Nations groups and of European settlers, and so they are of mixed ancestry. And so the Métis are also a very difficult community at times to identify, but to again make it as simple as possible, the Métis are a mix of First Nations and European settlers. Um, but again, they are more complicated than just that. And then lastly is the Inuit. And the Inuit, uh, which means the people in the Inuktitut language, uh, which is the language of the Inuit, is mainly the people that live within Canada's northern regions. And so this is usually the area that is to the north, areas like Nunavut, Northwest Territories, the Yukon. These three territories are the main areas where a lot of the Inuit live, but for the most part, they live in the northern regions uh, within Canada. Uh, an individual Inuit person is actually referred to as an Inuk, not as an Inuit. So Inuit actually refers to the general people, but an individual actually refers to Inuk. Uh, also, again, I always say this for every episode, but if I'm mispronouncing something, I apologize. I don't know how to pronounce these words properly. I've kind of tried to learn how to pronounce them, but I again apologize if I mispronounce it. So now that we've established, relatively speaking, uh, who these indigenous and aboriginal communities were, I think now it's important to move on to understanding what these residential, residential schools were uh, and what their goals and intentions were. And also, more specifically, who were the people that were behind these terrible schools? A broad definition of residential schools is that they are schools that were created by the Canadian government with the help of other actors like the church, private actors, uh, and uh, some other, uh, you know, influential, I guess I want to say, um, 
uh, I don't know, academics, some, you know, influential people. I don't know about influential academics, but some influential people that helped create and make the residential schools. And the main idea behind these schools was of educating, and I do quote unquote air quotes here, of educating indigenous and aboriginal kids so they could be indoctrinated into the European and Western society, which included them becoming Christians. And so the education that they received was not intended to actually quote-unquote teach them anything, but was instead focused on making sure that they were no longer indigenous, quote-unquote. And so I'm sure some of you have picked up is that the main idea of the schools was to ensure that the indigenous and aboriginal kids who would go to these schools were no longer affiliated with their indigenous communities and instead would become basically white people. They would become European Western and they would abandon the so-called backwards ways that their ancestors were and become Christians as well, of course, because that's, you know, that's a, that's a given, right? Uh, you can't be a proper human being, quote unquote, without being Christian. That was a very prominent idea at this time. And so the main focus then became of getting rid of the bad, you know, indigenous things that these kids learned and making them into the quote-unquote proper people, which were Christians in a European Western society. And of course, again, more complicated than that, but that's just a general basic way of explaining it. There's also a lot of misconception about what these residential schools and how long they actually operated. And believe it or not, um, and this is something that I think some people will be shocked by, but the last one was actually closed in 1996. And they did operate differently as the years went on, but still the last residential school wasn't closed that long ago. In 1996, in fact, I'm sure there's a few of you who might actually be listening to this who might have been born after 1996. So it wouldn't have been that long since the schools actually closed. And I'm sure some of you maybe who have kids or something, uh, you know, you probably have a kid or, you know, maybe you know someone who was born around this time. The schools were not closed that long ago. It was only in 1996 that the last one was actually closed. And the first one, however, opened in 1883, which is just 16 years after the country of Canada was formed. And so that's really, really, uh, you know, I don't know what to say, um, amazing or in a bad way, I guess, maybe shocking is a better word. 1883 to 1996, I think if my math is right, that's what, 113 years? I think so. I hope my math is right there, but... That's a long time. It's at least 100 plus years. 100 plus years these schools were open, focused on just indoctrinating indigenous children into European Western ways. It really is shocking. And again, I emphasize it so much that th these injustices that were faced that I'll get into in a second had been going on this entire time and that residential schools are just as old as the country of Canada itself. Now, who were the people that were teaching at these schools? They were, unfortunately, many, uh, I don't know how to put this kindly, I guess they were underqualified and untrained to actually do these 
job of educating these indigenous children. And many of them, in fact, didn't even have the proper certifications or skills to educate the kids. Which really begs the question, why would you open schools to so-called, you know, educate them, but then not actually get educators into the roles, you know, needed to make sure that the schools would properly function? And I want you guys to hang on to that because I'll get into this in a second, but it's really interesting to think about why that would be something that you would do. You would think, right, that if you made a school, uh, the first thing you probably uh, assume is, you know what, we're going to need some teachers. But for some reason, that's not what happened here. They didn't hire teachers. They hired people who were untrained and didn't have the proper certifications to educate the kids. And who were these people? Yes, the government of Canada was involved. But although the government may have funded some of these residential schools, for the most part, they were actually operated by churches within Canada. This includes the Catholic, the Anglican, the Methodist, and a variety of other churches as well. And so these churches were the main people who kind of led and uh, took care of the residential schools, which is why the churches have such a controversial role now, because many people are asking the churches to hold themselves accountable, to admit to their mistakes, and to pay uh, reparation to the people who they affected, which many of the churches have relatively acknowledged you know, the, the, I guess the bad things that they did or bad things is maybe a juvenile way of putting it. What I should really say is the inhumane treatments that these kids went through. Uh, many of the churches have tried to at least acknowledge it or at least have acknowledged it, but they haven't really, I guess you could say, owned up to the actual errors that they committed. I, I hope I've sort of established a bit about what these residential schools were really about and sort of some of the, uh, I guess, background settings that goes behind uh, kind of the history of these residential schools. And, you know, there are a few other details as well that I didn't get into again, uh, but for the most part, that is sort of a basic introduction uh, as to what these residential schools were kind of aiming to do. Now, what it became sort of in in practice, uh, of course, uh, you know, in uh, maybe a broader way, you kind of hear the word school and you think, oh, the government is giving, you know, free schooling to these indigenous kids. No, they weren't. They There was no free schooling. I already talked about the fact that the educators there weren't actually trained properly. But beyond that, the main and I think ethical problem with these residential schools was that the kids themselves were actually separated from their parents. The government, either through police forces like the Royal Canadian Mounted Police uh, and other, uh, you know, uh, I guess, police services within different regions, they would separate these kids from the parents, usually through the process of either kind of abducting them or forcibly removing them from the parents. And these kids would then not be allowed to maintain any sort of connection with any of their parents or anyone from their tribe, or anyone whatsoever who was indigenous or aboriginal at all. So these kids, some of who were very young, they were removed from their parents and basically forced into these schools where they were told to essentially abandon their entire families that they knew existed. Like, just think about that for a second. Those of you who maybe have kids or those of you who maybe have siblings that are younger than you, what if one day someone just showed up to your house 
and just remove them from you, what would you do? It must be so frustrating, so heartbreaking to have a kid, to have a sibling, and then to just have them taken away from you like that. And and the worst part of it is the parents obviously knew the kids were alive because they knew who took them, but they weren't allowed ever to really communicate with them. And not only that, the kids as well were forced to give up their languages and their cultures. And, you know, this is again goes back to the idea of making the kids into Western European people uh, because they weren't allowed to practice their own cultures either. So these kids would know about their own indigenous cultures because they would grow up in these environments. But then at the same time, they would then be forced to not talk about or even discuss uh, what, you know, their cultures were. The boarding schools were also separated by gender, which meant that many of the kids hardly got to interact with uh, the opposite gender. And so many of you know the boys or the girls, they had no idea how to actually communicate with someone who was of the opposite gender, which led to a lot of problems later on in their future, uh, because when they actually did need to interact with others, they had no idea how to do it. And to make matters worse, and I think this just adds the depravity of these residential schools and the disgusting, uh, you know, I guess, attitudes that went behind it. But if you had a sibling who was a girl or, you know, a boy or sorry, a, a, you know, a, a brother or a sister, you would not be allowed to see them because they would even separate siblings by gender as well. And, and there were many accounts that many uh, indigenous survivors of the residential schools that they gave where they talked about how they would know that they had a sibling, but they just would never be allowed to talk to them. They wouldn't be allowed to even communicate whatsoever, adding to the idea of the entire families that were being ripped apart. Not only did they rip them apart from the actual parents, but then they separated them between siblings either. So even if you were an older brother or an older sister, you couldn't take care of your younger or your other sibling. That's the level to the injustice that went behind these residential schools, the level to which they separated and made sure they tried their hardest, their absolute hardest to make sure that indigenous kids weren't allowed to even communicate the slightest with anyone else who was indigenous. Again, it is just absolute horrifying to, to read about the lengths that the government went and, and the people behind these residential schools, the lengths they went to just ensure that these kids couldn't be part of their own cultures. And I mentioned earlier how many of the people at these uh, at these schools were very untrained and didn't have the actual proper qualifications. Well, of course, there was many an unfortunate ramifications to that. And this is probably the, I guess, most, I don't know if I want to say most upsetting, but the thing that definitely uh, left, I think, maybe the longest traumatizing uh, effect on many of these kids was that many of the children, and unfortunately, many of the children that were at these schools faced mental, physical, emotional, and sexual abuse at the hands of many of the residential school teachers who were allowed to have free control over all of the students. Many of them reported, and I should say not just many, most of them reported that they were given, uh, you know, many, you know, physical hard beatings on a daily basis. Uh, some of the kids would have, you know, lasting impacts due to this abuse. 
And to make matters worse, the, the kids were actually not taught anything beyond primary school education either. Uh, many of the kids only had a, a maybe a grade four or grade six education when they were done all that schooling. So by the time that they were actually done their schooling, quote unquote, they would be thrown into the world without even you know any sort of training. The only thing that they were ever taught was how to do hard labor, which was basically, you know, how to sew things uh, in terms of, you know, knitting them together or whatever. How, you know, farming was what they were taught. They were taught how to clean things. That's it. They they had barely been taught how to read or write. And, and it really makes you wonder, why would you build a school, not hire teachers, let those teachers, the so-called teachers, do whatever they wanted to these kids, not even train them properly, and then throw them back out into the world. Of course these kids were going to fail. Of course generations of indigenous and aboriginal kids were going to fail. They weren't even trained properly in how to, you know, be a human being. All they were ever shown was terrible things about, you know, uh, uh, teachers beating them and, you know, hurting them and mentally, physically, emotionally, and sexually hurting them. Of course these kids were not going to end up well. How were they supposed to end up well? They were barely given a chance. And these are all things that the Canadian government, along with the church and many other actors, committed. And when you hear, as a Muslim, and you hear these residential school survivors talking about the pain that they faced and the pain that they suffered from that, and, you know, indigenous communities that talk about the pain that they've suffered from for generations after, this is what they're talking about. All these kids were taught at the school was how to mentally, physically, emotionally, and sexually abuse others. That's all they were taught. And so when they're thrown into the world, that's all they know. Because that's all that they had throughout their life. They had no family to love them because the families were torn apart. They had no siblings because they couldn't see their siblings. They weren't allowed to. This is the, the true depravity of these schools. These schools, they, they, they knew, by the way, they knew. You know, the, the, the schools actually knew there was actually a lot of studies and a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of people that went to some of these schools and they would report on the fact they would say, hey, like these schools are not good. They're leading to a lot of kids dying, a lot of kids being abused and people ignored it. People ignored it. The churches ignored it. The government ignored it. Many private actors who supported it ignored it. And they continue to let these kids be mentally, physically, emotionally, and sexually abused. Some of these kids, they were just children. They weren't even older than 10. And they were being sexually abused. Like th This was happening to them on a daily basis for some of them. Because they, there was nowhere else for them to go. They were stuck. They couldn't leave. There was no one, there was no one to go to. They didn't know where their families were. And, and oftentimes, many of these kids would die at these schools as well, which I'll get into uh, in a second. But this is the, the pain that these kids had to suffer on arguably a daily basis. On a daily basis, they'd have to suffer this. And eventually, you know, and, and this isn't maybe a positive eventually, but the school system that was set up did change slightly uh, in the 1960s, where there was a, a greater focus on a child welfare system but this resulted in many children being forcibly removed from their parents and then being put into households with white families, which again reinforced 
the systemic separation of children from their families and again reinforced the idea that the children belonged uh, to become white European people. And so the school system was sort of shifted away from, uh, you know, putting them into schools where they then started basically uh, taking them away from the parents in the 1960s and using the child welfare system where they were, quote unquote, helping the kids through child welfare, were then instead just throwing them into white families' households so that the white family could raise the kid in the, quote unquote, proper way. So... In general here, and I know I went into uh, you know a bit of a rant there, uh, but I, I want to just emphasize again uh, that the residential schools themselves were horrific and that they led to generations of trauma and suffering for these indigenous kids who then had to grow up. And when they were raising their own children, they are they unfortunately, some of them, dealt with those children the same way that they were dealt with in the residential school, which continued the cycle of abuse, where these children who were raised with mental, physical, emotional, and sexual abuse at the hands of their school teachers then only knew how to do that to others as well. And and they were raised in such bad conditions. And that's the legacy that these residential schools have left on these communities. That's the legacy of them. And I know, again, some of you may be thinking, what does this have to do with Muslims and Islam? Well, it has a lot to do with us in that as citizens of this country, especially those of us who live in Canada, and, and even those of you who don't live in Canada, you know, countries like Australia, New Zealand, America, uh, you know, even, uh, even you know, European countries as well, they have a history of abuse and, you know, of, uh, you know, suffering that they have inflicted on many indigenous communities throughout the world. And these sort of things are residential schools. The residential schools are not the first place where indigenous communities have been treated like this. In many countries, even in countries like Australia, for example, indigenous communities were suppressed as well. And they were treated, I don't know if it was residential schools there as well, but they were mistreated as well. And as Muslims, again, we are supposed to be the arbiters of peace and justice. And how can we be that? If you just willingly ignore the injustices that have happened within countries that we live in, we just can't and we shouldn't. We should be better than that. And and that's what I hope some of you have learned from talking or at least from listening to me talk about what these residential schools were and what their legacy was. But again, there's more to it than just that. And the second part that I want to focus on, and this is a good transition, I guess, to the next part, which is more of a modern uh, kind of impact of these residential schools. And that I'm sure as many Canadians have been hearing on the news, uh, and as some of us maybe are informed of, is that there are many graves that are being found of dead Indigenous kids near some of these residential schools. And I think it's important to understand that these graves that are being found are not mass graves, but are instead unmarked graves of kids who died at residential schools. And why are they important? Well, because many of the parents that had their kids taken away would were not necessarily, uh, and, and this is another level of the depravity of these schools, but some of these parents were not actually told whether or not their child was still alive. You know, in some cases, some of the kids were actually sent back 
to uh, their families, but this was usually only when the parent, or sorry, when the child was about to die. So the parent would be, the kid would be sent back to the parent, and then the kid would die at least, at least with, you know, the, the comfort of being at home. But for many of those kids, they were not as lucky, and many of them actually died at the residential schools, and the parents were not informed of whether or not those kids were actually dead. And can you imagine being a parent, losing your kid, and then never hearing from whether or not they actually survived? Can you imagine the pain that some of those parents must have gone through? Losing their kid and then never hearing from their kid ever again. And then not only finding out they're never going to hear from them, they'll never know if they survived or not. And that's why these graves that are being found are so, so important. Because the the parents, the, the descendants of those parents, finally, after so many years, are finally getting some sort of closure where they're being told, whether or not their kid uh, or their, you know, their, uh, their family member actually survived. And so numbers-wise, uh, it's estimated that uh, around 6,000 kids died at the residential schools. And again, I cannot stress enough that when I say 6,000 kids, I mean literal kids. They were not you know, young adults. They were kids, innocent kids. That probably were, you know, elementary school kids, some of them that died there, 6,000 of them. And it's estimated that for the most part, about 150,000 kids were placed in the schools in total. But the numbers could also be a bit off because, for example, the 6,000 kids that died at residential schools, that only counts the kids that actually died at residential schools. It doesn't count the kids who were sent back home and then died at home. It doesn't count that. And so that 6,000 number might actually be higher, meaning that there are much more kids that might be unaccounted for that actually died due to the residential schools themselves. And to put this into context and a good comparison to really get an understanding of just how likely it was to die at these residential schools, but in World War II, a Canadian soldier had a 1 in 26 odd for dying while serving in combat as compared to a 1 in 25 odds with dying at a residential school for a student. So a soldier in World War II, World War II, that World War II, one of the bloodiest conflicts, or oh no, sorry, probably the bloodiest conflict in history, a Canadian soldier had a 1 in 26 odd of dying in combat, but a kid in residential school had almost equal and a 1 in 25 odds at dying in a residential school. That is remarkable. Again, not in a good way, in a god-awful way. 1 in 25 odds of dying. That's it's insane. It's absolutely insane. That's how many kids would die at these schools. That's how bad they were treated. And much of it was because the schools were massively underfunded uh, as well, which meant that they had a lack of resources and equipment to actually properly take care of the children, which again is just absolutely baffling 
in a long line of baffling decisions that go behind the residential schools. Not only did they not hire teachers, they didn't even properly fund the schools, they didn't bother checking up on the schools, they didn't bother to investigate reports of abuse, uh, sexual, physical, mental, whatever, they didn't care to even report on it the slightest. They just didn't care. They just made these schools so they could abduct the children, force them into the schools, and indoctrinate them into the ways. They didn't care whether these kids would become doctors or engineers or, you know, uh, uh, you know, police officers, teachers, whatever. They didn't care. They just wanted these kids to no longer be indigenous. That's how much they despised the kids who were indigenous. That's how much they despised them. They just wanted to make sure they were no longer that. And that is just, uh, again, it's, it's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. And I, as I mentioned before, uh, abuse was rampant at these schools. And uh, I'm going to go into some details as to how some of the kids were physically abused. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to go into too much detail, um, but I am going to talk about what some survivors recall. And, you know, some of you might want to skip this. Go ahead if you want to. Maybe go forward a few minutes. But, uh, you know, the survivors obviously went into detail a lot about uh, how they were, uh, you know, treated at these schools. And some survivors recall uh, being beaten and strapped. And so they would be strapped to their beds or they would be strapped to, you know, poles or something. And they would be beaten hard. Not, you know, a light beating that maybe a parent gives to a child every now and then. You know, I mean, I, I'm Pakistani, you know, some of us who are brown. We know, you know, sometimes, you know, maybe you get a little, you know, hit uh, on your shoulder or something or, you know, a hit on, on your head. But those are just sort of light hits. They're not actual hard hits that are going to hurt you. That's not how these kids were treated. For the most part, many survivors said that a lot of the beatings would happen when they either broke many of the strict rules that were at uh, the residential schools, or if they spoke anything to do with their uh, indigenous cultures. So if they even spoke their languages or their you know traditional culture, they would get beaten. And, and some of the punishments were very, uh, I don't know how to put this, they were very violent. Some students would get shackled to their beds, they'd get tied up there. Um, some would have needles shoved in their tongues for speaking their native languages. All of this, all of this stuff happening to innocent children. And, and I mean, I can imagine or I can't imagine, sorry, what those kids must have been going through. You know, the, the beatings just for doing what? For speaking a different language? I mean, as a person who's an Urdu speaker, I, I mean, what, I, I can only imagine what that would feel like. Someone started beating me because I spoke Urdu. That's That's insane. And yet, that's what would, ha- what would happen to these kids. And again, again, I'll emphasize this more. These are not high school kids. Some of them, a lot of them, were just elementary school kids. On top of these physical beatings some of these kids would get on, you know, maybe a daily or even weekly basis, uh, I don't know. But uh, on top of the beatings, um, the abuse also was due to pure sanitation overcrowding and severely inadequate amounts of food and a lack of health care in many of these uh, residential schools, which left many of the children vulnerable to diseases like tuberculosis and influenza. And a lot of those kids who ended up dead and buried was because they weren't being given the proper health care that many of them deserved or even needed. 
I mean, can you imagine a kid, a six-year-old or an eight-year-old, a 10-year-old kid dying from influenza, not being given the proper health care, possibly dying alone, you know, not being able to see their own family, not being able to, you know, talk to their own siblings, not even being able to talk their own language. Can you imagine what they must have been going through? Like, did they just by themselves dying of influenza or tuberculosis, whatever, of, of some disease or getting beat by themselves, you know, the, or the, you know, the, the kids just suffering all that on their own, they were suffering that, you know, like they, they were separated from everyone, like a child dying on its own, not even able to see its mother for the last time or its father or anything like that. The child just dies did you think they, they wondered or, or, you know, thought about their parents? You know, who knows what their last moments were like? Were they even comforted as they died? Did these residential schools even give those kids that much of a comfort? Because it seems like they never did because they would beat them on a daily basis. It's just, it's, it's disgusting what went on in these schools. And that's all things that happened within Canada. It's part of Canada's history. It's what Canada did to these residential school kids. And lastly here, it's pretty unclear uh, how much was actually known by the state or church officials, but as I mentioned before, it is known that there were that they were actually aware of the shocking number of indigenous kids who were dying at the schools. And for the most part, you know, the government has acknowledged it, um, but the government's responses have been sort of twofold. The government often will acknowledge that they did, in fact, participate in the, you know, residential schools and that kids did die there. But then they'll try and use this acknowledgement by then trying to shift blame to someone else or they'll, you know, they won't take actually blame for what happened. And that's why a lot of the apologies that you see for, you know, government officials uh, about these residential schools, why they are so weak, because so many of these, you know, apologies are just, they're just words. They're not actual apologies. You know, an apology is acknowledging what you did wrong. An apology is, uh, you know, admitting guilt, admitting fault. But just saying, yes, something bad happened, that's not an apology. That's, that's just trying to deflect the blame. While then on the other side, the church, uh, and by the church, I mean many of the churches, but the main church that's actually quote-unquote guilty, or not actually quote-unquote guilty, what am I saying? They are guilty of being part of the residential schools is the Catholic Church. They were the church that had the most amount of residential schools that they owned and operated, but I'm just going to use the term church because it's, it's in general to a lot of the churches within Canada, but the churches have for the most part attempted to deny uh, their full part in the creation of residential schools. Now, not all churches are like this. Actually, some of the churches have acknowledged and admitted guilt, uh, to some degree at least, about what happened and what they did wrong. Uh, but the Catholic Church, which again was the biggest proponent of these residential schools, has for the most part attempted to deny its full part in the creation of the residential schools and has inadequ inadequately responded to the findings of the dead bodies. And so for the most part, the church has really just tried to get out of paying any amount for reconciliation with indigenous groups. In fact, actually, recent documents have shown uh, that the Catholic Church has tried its hardest 
to actually get out of paying amounts that were uh, originally supposed to be paid out. And so the church has tried uh, through the use of its lawyers and uh, its own funds uh, to try and pressure other groups into reducing the actual amount that the church has to pay back in reconciliation with indigenous groups. And much of this reconciliation has to do with a monetary, uh, I guess, uh, amounts sent to some of these groups, um, not to pay them off, but to sort of take care of their counseling, to take care of the, the emotional trauma that they have received due to being at the residential schools, etc., etc. I encourage you to go and read about uh, the reconciliation. Um, it's a very important topic within Canada uh, because it's obviously a very big issue. Um, but the churches, again, specifically the Catholic Church, have really not done a great job of actually acknowledging uh, you know, their role to play in the treatment of indigenous kids at these residential schools. And to make matters worse, because of course, something did make matters worse, there are still some church members and some people within Canadian society that try to say and unjustly try to justify why there were residential schools in the first place, and many of them say that there was good, quote-unquote, that was done at the school. Now, it's important to say that, yes, some of the schools were actually better than others. Not all of them abused and hurt Indigenous kids, but a vast majority of them did. And a vast majority of the survivors of these schools were abused mentally, physically, and sexually. So saying that there was some good that was done is not really, not okay, not even, it's, it's not even right to say. It's just wrong to say. Like, I'm sorry, like this is off the cuff, but it's just wrong to say. It's not right. There was not good that was done. It doesn't matter if some of the, you know, the priests or the nuns there were, you know, nice to the indigenous kids. Those indigenous kids were abducted. They were abducted from their families. It doesn't matter what good was done at the schools. They were abducted. They didn't belong there. They belonged with their parents, their families. If you wanted to do good, return them to their parents. That's what being good would have been. But that's not what happened. And so it is inexcusable uh, to anyone to say that there was good that was done at the schools. And in my eyes, you know, in my mind, this is why, for me, as a Muslim, I find that it's so important for us to be informed about residential schools, again, specifically as Canadian Muslims. You know, we are supposed to be people who bring justice. And, and you know, Islam, and I talked about this, you know, in previous episodes, Islam is supposed to help others. You know, Islam is supposed to, you know, beautify your culture. And, and you know, as Muslims, we need to use Islam and, you know, the, the way that we look at social justice issues uh, and use Islam as a guidance to, to help, uh, you know, social justice issues and bring them to light. Because it's our job as Muslims to end injustices. It really is, right? That's the way of Islam is that you end injustices. You don't take part in them, you end them. And one of those ways is to acknowledge and know about Canada's history, especially those of us who benefit from Canada's colonial past, from Canada abusing and hurting these indigenous kids 
so that it could destroy indigenous cultures and then build right on top of them. Because that's what Canada is at the heart of it. Canada is a colonial country. Canada was built by destroying indigenous communities. And if we're going to be Muslims who believe in fighting injustices, then we just can't willingly ignore the injustices that were faced by these indigenous communities. We need to create dialogues. We need to create conversations among people in our own communities as well. And I hope that this episode was at least informing or at least informative because it's really important for us to know because these protests, you know, these people, indigenous groups that come out and, you know, talk about this, we need to support them. Do we need to be absolutely, you know, protesting with them all the way? No, maybe not, but we should be informed. I'd rather be informed than be ignorant. And that's just me, but I'd rather know something than not know. And I don't know about you, but when I hear the stories of the kids that suffered, the lost generations of indigenous children, the lost the families that were separated, I don't know how I can sit there and say that I should ignore that. When you hear these stories, you hear the suffering, how do you not say that we need to fight and honor the people who suffered this grave injustice? In conclusion, thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Uh, I know, again, it was a bit different and maybe a bit off topic in sort of the general thing that I focus on in terms of Muslims in the 21st century. But again, I can't implore you enough. This is a very important topic to talk about. And of course, in Canada, it is becoming more and more important that it is something that we need to talk about, especially since uh, the National Truth and Reconciliation Day had passed just last week. But again, you know, please go do your own research. Try and learn more about residential schools as well as Canada's treatment of its indigenous communities. Um, as Muslims, again, uh, I feel like I've emphasized this a lot. It's our job to fight against injustice. And again, it doesn't necessarily need to be that we solve the problem, but we at least need to fight against it. If you guys enjoyed today's episode as well, please remember to leave a five-star review on whatever, whatever podcast host you're listening to this from. It really helps this show grow and it allows me to make more episodes as well. And if you enjoyed today's episode, uh, please share it with others as well. If you enjoyed it, I'm sure others will uh, as well. And also, it'll be a good opportunity to maybe inform or get a dialogue going on residential schools because I know as an immigrant, uh, I know a lot of people, especially maybe some of the more uh, elder immigrants, that don't know about residential schools largely because they weren't told about it because Canada doesn't really teach everyone that they did the residential schools. And so maybe it is better for us to start sharing these sort of things so we can create those dialogues. Uh, either than that, uh, please go check out my Instagram page if you guys have time. It's just Muslims in your backyard. I make other posts on the Instagram page as well as I post updates about the show. So please go follow it if you have an Instagram account. Um, but either than that, uh, if you guys enjoyed today's episode, thank you guys for listening. Uh, as always, inshallah and alafis, we'll meet again. <laughs>